Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Fear. During the 17th and 18th century, Antonio Stradivarius and his family built violins, violas, cellos, and other stringed instruments. His instruments are so iconic, the name precedes itself. Players often noting the sound quality of a Stradivarius is superior, defying conventional stringed instrument sound. Spruce, willow, and maple make up the intricate parts of a Stradivarius. During his long pattern period between 1690 and 1700, a member of Napoleon's army, Count Gabriel, owned a violin that later sold for 3.6 million in 2010. The golden period between 1700 and 1725 produced the Lady Blunt violin that sold for 15.9 million in London 2011. Now, please enjoy Kill Fee. At the center of Ureshi Corporation's production lot in Los Angeles was an octagonal skyscraper of management offices known as the Cathedral. The rest of the campus, a collection of warehouses, stages, and low buildings, was arranged around the Cathedral like a quaint medieval village in its mighty shadow. One of those low buildings was Carlos Amador's home away from home, the Music Production Department. Amador was a composer for the best-selling video games Ureshi produced. Technically an independent contractor, he nevertheless spent more time on the lot than at the stylish mid-century house in which he lived. Late at night, he could be found staring at the giant monitor in his office workstation in deep prayer to the gods of melody and song, wrangling, splicing, and overlaying bright ribbons of color that represented each instrumental group until it all came together to form a single piece of digital music. After mixing in the recordings of live players, he sequenced all the pieces to build a soundtrack that elevated gameplay beyond the simple repetition of killing digital enemies. The video game business was now more than three times the size of the film industry it emulated, with the egos of its executives growing to match. With greater sales came greater salaries and less stability for its employees when the power inevitably shifted at the top every two or three years to keep the corporation lean, mean, and competitively keen. When augmented reality games had taken off, Ureshi scored big with its series of first-person smartphone shooters, and Carlos was fortunate enough to be the one who provided the soundtrack. With its latest tech innovations in place for the new game, the company was now poised to expand exponentially. The game's music, of course, needed to evolve along with the rest of the franchise. Amador's protagonist theme, for the latest iteration of the game had to be something that would personally resonate with 90% of the intended audience, a target number that only the best of the best composers had ever managed to hit in the past. When he read that he had been summoned to meet his boss, Bob Sherwood, at the cathedral, Carlos woke up an hour earlier to make sure he was dressed his best in a good-fitting dark brown suit, appointing every detail with artistry like writing another piece of music. 
he was satisfied with the man in the mirror. Though approaching middle age, he still managed a slightly too slim body and uh, thick mid-length hair that suggested upscale actor or a recording artist. When the elevator doors opened, he was surprised to find Elise standing there, looking like she was about to burst into tears. She was the QA tester on the game, and her specialty was spotting every glitch and mistake, game developers call them bugs, that pertained to audio. Carlos had never seen her look so unhappy. Are you all right? No, she said. I'm off the project. She threw her arms around him and sobbed. Oh, I'm so sorry, Elise. Her tears were hot and wet on his neck. She stepped back, one hand still holding onto his arm. Now I need to find another fucking gig. I'll help you. Oh, that's okay. You don't have to do that, she said. When he had first moved to L.A., Carlos found that its people, everyday worshippers of the entertainment art the city produced, often said things they didn't mean. This was something that annoyed him. He eventually came to accept it in others, but made a point of not emulating it himself. Let's have lunch next week, he said. You lost your job. No reason to lose your work friends, too. Really? Next week? Won't you be in crunch time with the mix? How's Tuesday? I'll meet you off campus. That's really cool of you, Carlos. Okay. She wiped her tears on her sweatshirt sleeve. Listen, you know your music, and you're going to be fine, he said. Remember when we talked at last year's Christmas party? I couldn't believe you liked all the same obscure stuff that I did. Johansson, Takamitsu. You even gave me a couple of recommendations that were spot on. You have great ears. Thanks, she sniffed. Okay, I'll see you then, then. See you then, then, he repeated. The brushed steel elevator doors closed, and she was on her way down, excommunicated, in a manner of speaking, from the cathedral. Perhaps there was something he could do to help her back to the true faith of music production, either here or at another company. He took in a deep breath and let it out, slowly. Ugh, Black Friday. Sherwood probably wanted to discuss changes on the project. Who else on his team was in danger this time? Damn, he thought. Elise was great. Every time the corporate regime changed, they laid people off, presumably to illustrate greater levels of efficiency to the stockholders. How much money was the company really saving by cutting a few QA people? It sickened him. There would probably be additional layoffs, potential emotional powder kegs, wandering the halls, saying tearful goodbyes to their former workmates. A glance at his watch reminded him he was time for the meeting, so... Carlos avoided eye contact and searched for the name plaque that indicated Bob Sherwood's office. As he searched, he noted the building's interior colors of green and light gray. Odd, he thought, with the corporate logo being bright red and yellow. Then again, green and gray were calming colors that probably came in handy on days like this. For a space that accommodated so many people, the bright, fluorescent-lit silence was odd, too. A few employees dressed in smart, casual clothes glided through the halls with grave faces, ghosts of their former selves, while others moved purposefully across the thin carpet, swiping smartphones, probably testing the alpha version of the game. A few different colors in their clothing, many the same. Black shirts, 
white shirts, blue jeans, khakis. Everyone had shiny laminated corporate identity cards. Carlos had one also, but unlike theirs, his was marked with a temporary red visitor band, announcing his corporate status to be even flimsier than theirs. A young Japanese man with a buzz cut and a worn black t-shirt that read Pegasus Espresso directed Carlos to Sherwood's office. Yeah, that one. He pointed to a door on the west wall, which was thick, segmented glass, set apart from the gray, cube-like workstations that dominated the busy innards of the floor. Carlos approached and knocked. Bob Sherwood, seated behind the glass door, looked up from some papers on his desk and motioned for him to come in. Sherwood adjusted the brim of his black trilby hat. Carlos, hi. Please close the door behind you and have a seat. Carlos unbuttoned his coat and did as he was asked. He sensed bad news coming. All the comments he had on the tip of his brain about the day's progress fell away like shards of glass from a smashed window. His career flitted across his thoughts. Top session pianist. The motorcycle accident that ruined his left hand. Extensive physical therapy to build it back up, though never quite back to world-class level. A slow start as a composer. His gradual rise to fame, scoring last generation's first-person shooters. Artistic stagnation. Then this project had opened up his creative universe. He had finally been able to reach deep inside himself and produce a magnum opus that worked beautifully with the new AR algorithm. Bob said, I'm sure you've heard rumblings of changes on the project, and unfortunately, it does affect you. Carlos was stunned. Despite his fears, his larger expectation had been the usual line about cutting support staff, needing additional minutes of music, things of inconvenience, anything but a sharp end. Maybe he was jumping to conclusions. What do you mean? Well, you know I loved your work on the project, but my new boss, Jeremy, wants to go with our second choice. Second choice of composer? I've been scoring these games for the last six years. I didn't even know you had a second choice. Do you know Neville Highsmith? A film composer? Of course I know him. He's a friend and a neighbor. His house is right up the street from mine on Laurel. We were wondering if you could talk to him for us. Tell him it's okay with you that we're transitioning the music responsibilities to him. Carlos hesitated. I don't understand. Today is the last day of recording live players. After mix and master, the final pieces go to the sound team for implementation. You're going to throw out the whole score and replace it with something Neville hasn't even written yet? It, it's the best thing I've ever done. I know, Carlos, and it pains me. We're not throwing it out, really. We'll find something to do with it, somewhere. Some other project, maybe. For God's sake, Bob, it's practically one month until beta. How the hell is Highsmith going to compose a new score that quickly? Don't worry about that. He's got a team of young composers working for him to fill in the details. Says he can do it in three weeks. Carlos took a deep breath. A strange fear pulled at his entrails. So, that's it? I'm off the project? You want me to get my things and go? 
Sherwood glanced back down and turned the page of the contract on his desk. You've got a good agent, and I see that he built a kill fee into your agreement with us. So we'll still need to pay you for the final three milestones. Well, that's something, Carlos thought. Still, it was a hollow victory. He had enough money already. That's not what this was about. Bob said, You're on break from the orchestra session right now, correct? Yeah. I'd like to ask you something, though I'm not sure how you're going to feel about it. Finish out the session. The orchestra's already paid for, and my favorite piece hasn't been recorded, the protagonist theme. You'd like me to... I know it'll be difficult, but we're parting company on good terms here, Carlos. This is business. It has nothing to do with either one of us. It's about the project. You didn't do anything wrong. And why am I being punished? Carlos glanced up for a moment and looked beyond Sherwood. The office had a dramatic view of the Hollywood freeway slicing through the San Fernando Valley below. The subtle curve of it reminded him of the dark serpent in Rousseau's infamous snake charmer painting. Bob said, I thought it would be good for you, you know, for closure. This score took you over a year to complete, and you produced great work, Carlos. What if I refuse? Sherwood nodded his brow and leaned back in his chair. Well, I hope this won't affect our ongoing relationship. He brushed the air in front of his face like he was being bothered by an imaginary fly. The kill fee is yours, regardless, of course. He slid a pre-typed check across the desk to Carlos. But I'd like to think I can call on you for future projects, you know. There's only one man we'll never work with again, and that's Gregory Ka. Five years ago, we wanted to amend his contract to do some additional music, and he refused. Something about a vacation with his family he'd been planning? I mean, can you imagine? The project always comes first, am I right? Now, a not-so-veiled threat of being blacklisted, thought Carlos. The day keeps improving. Anger roiled in him, urging him to explode, though he was able to keep it in check. For some reason, the squall of emotion reminded him of Elise. Though he was already off the project, he had precious little with which to bargain. There must be some way he could still help her. Carlos had stopped people from being laid off by Bob before, during the previous regime change. Orders had come down from above to tighten the belts, and Carlos's engineer and copyist were on the chopping block. Carlos had written each employee's name next to the task they performed on the project and said, Tell me what task you don't want done, and I'll cross it off along with the name next to it. It had been a bluff, though Bob conceded, presumably moving on to make the cuts from other departments, and the engineer and copyist had kept their jobs. Carlos was fresh out of ideas this time. He said, I wanted to ask, is there any way you can keep Elise on? Can't do it. She's already been cut. Human resources, you know. My hands are tied. He turned his palms face up and put one thick wrist on top of the other. Bob didn't have to consider Carlos's needs or the needs of those who depended upon him any longer. The only power Carlos had left was in deciding to finish out today's session or not. Part of him wanted to take the check, give Bob the finger, and storm out. If he followed through with that, what would become of the music? 
Wasn't his steadfast devotion to the art of music the reason he had come so far all these years in the first place? His mother, who had cleaned houses in Madrid to put him through music school, had a saying she used to tell him. What was it? Something about finishing your task no matter what? If something isn't complete, it's nothing. Okay, I'll finish the session, Bob. Good, good. I'm glad we're in agreement. I'm sorry things changed on the project. I really thought your work was great. I fought for you, but your hands were tied. Carlos was skeptical about that. Fought until he sensed his own job might be in jeopardy, maybe. Bob had always been an expert at covering his own political ass. It was a shame. Bob had decent taste in music. After all, he had approved all of Carlos's work. Now, Bob apparently had nothing to give the project except an education in corporate mediocrity. Neville Highsmith was all wrong for the game in everything except name recognition. This wasn't about art. It was about marketing. You know, the worst thing, Carlos, is I like you. Take care. Bob stood up, extended his hand. Carlos shook it, stone-faced. I like you too, Bob, was all he could say. He wanted to reach across the table and throttle his boss until that insipid hat fell off his head, press into Bob's neck with his thumbs until he squeezed out all the air, until he could feel the hardness of bone underneath. Instead, he exerted his will to say those final words without them sounding tortured. It was the right thing to do if he ever wanted to be invited back to the cathedral again. Others' eyes were upon him when he walked slowly back to the elevator. They knew. Rumors spread like a contagious disease through a corporation when heads were being cut. He was alone with his thoughts, going down, dwelling on how his life's work had essentially amounted to nothing. Shattered dreams. He wanted to vomit, open his mouth, and found he was empty inside, gutted. The meeting had gone exactly the way Bob had wanted it to, Carlos thought, despite the concerned boss act. He numbly handed his temporary access card to the desk clerk on his way out of the building. The clerk said something Carlos didn't hear. His mind was racing with thoughts of where he would go from here and that he was becoming uncomfortably warm in his suit. He wondered if he would ever hear from Bob again. Probably not. Did he really have the presence of mind to finish out the session on a project from which he had been fired? He should probably go straight to his motorcycle and ride off into the sunset. Apparently not, because he found himself back at the orchestra stage. He walked up the carpeted stairs into the cooler air of the controlled room. He signaled to his assistant and engineer that he was ready to begin again. They worked through the remainder of the session mostly in silence. His crew probably knew, though they didn't say anything, and neither did Carlos. All that mattered now was getting through the work. Behind the control room glass on the vast wood-paneled soundstage, musicians played beautifully, like one living, breathing entity. Cue after cue, the takes were perfect, even better than he hoped. The final piece was the protagonist theme. The first chair violinist, a white-haired man in a gray suit, drew his bow along the strings. 
Those rich, mellow lows and soaring silver-toned highs pleased Carlos's ears more than he could say. That glorious sound vibrated every fiber of his body, and just for a moment, it was like nothing else in the universe existed. If that wasn't ecstasy, what was? After the performance, the orchestra posed for a few pictures with Carlos, then packed up their instruments and slowly filed out. The first chair violinist took his time and was quietly putting his instrument away when Carlos approached. You're Steiger, right? Carlos said. I am. He straightened into a tall man. He had a handsome face, reminding Carlos of a European Ted Danson. Steiger extended his hand. The knuckles were oversized, giving his digits an ugly, ghoulish aspect. No doubt the result of decades of arduous daily practice. When they shook hands, Carlos immediately felt a connection, as if Steiger were a long-lost brother. After all that happened today, he couldn't help being impressed by this man. This was a true artist, one who could give beautiful life to the notes on the page. I can't believe I'm shaking the hand of a man who plays the Stradivarius. Ah, yes, the violin. Would you like to see it? I would. He gingerly took the instrument. It smelled of wood oil and old dust. Spruce, willow, and maple were used in the body and internal ribs. And the varnish, well, that's a family secret, isn't it? Otherwise, every luthier in the world would be making these. Steiger looked off into the distance. Not many left now. This one is worth millions. The body governs the sound brilliantly, don't you think? There is also the magic of the strings. Many session players, even those in the L.A. Phil, use steel strings. I rather think the old ways are best, don't you? Catgut? Indeed. Of course, catgut is an expression. They are not, and never have been, made from cats. Can you imagine what a PR disaster that would have been? No, they're usually made from the intestines of animals that are slaughtered for food. Hogs, cows, sheep. Ah! Carlos raised an appreciative eyebrow and handed the Stradivarius back to Steiger. How can you afford it? True, most musicians only rent such instruments. I have a sizable inheritance to supplement my income and uh, a secondary business that I do from midnight to 4 a.m. Carlos looked up into Steiger's cold blue eyes. Secondary business? I am an exterminator. It was the way he said it. Those words echoed in Carlos's mind. He glanced around the stage for anyone who might be eavesdropping. They were alone. Carlos laughed, relieving tension. You, you can't be serious. I am. The day had already been bizarre enough. The thought of his violinist being a hitman on the side was an 18-wheeler smashing into Carlos's brain. His world was all art, music, sleepless nights hunched over a keyboard, and violent video games, not actual violence. If what you're saying is true, why on earth would you tell me? 
How else could you know that you could hire me? Hire you? Steiger said, I know about the recent changes to the project. Word travels fast. It's a shame about the music. We were all pulling for you. I'm afraid the future seems rather bleak now, artistically speaking, with Neville Highsmith coming in to be the composer. I hear the new head of the company wanted to keep your music in. It was Bob Sherwood who wanted to hire the big name. How the hell do you know? Steiger offered only a slight smile in response. I rather think this project should be in the hands of a new director, don't you? 100,000 up front, 100,000 when I'm done. Carlos was physically exhausted from the stresses of the day, yet he was still tempted by half-formed questions. Supposing, suppose I took you up on your offer. The project would be fine, Steiger said. You know much about art and music, Mr. Amador, but little about the way a corporation truly works. Change violinists, and no one says a word. If a project can change composers, why not directors? The project will continue. And isn't it best served by that beautiful theme? I probably could have done an even better take, had we more time on the clock today. The incantation of your theme brought me here. You put a prayer out to the gods of music in the world. I heard you and answered. Is that really so surprising? Right now, we're experiencing a critical moment of musical history. This will probably be the most popular game of all time. What are the projections? 40 million downloads? 50? Imagine that many users hearing your protagonist theme. It's what you always wanted, isn't it? You should be afraid to not hire me. If you truly believe it's all about the art, what choice do you really have? Art is important. Of course, it's as important as murder. Look at history. What do we really know about the ancient Greeks? What endures, not the details of their daily lives, only their wars and their art. Carlos wondered what his mother would say. Finish your task. He swallowed in a dry throat. You're hired. He said it quickly to rob himself of any time for further second guesses. He endorsed the kill fee check and handed it to Steiger, who emotionlessly folded it and put it in his breast pocket, then packed up his things and left. Carlos stood there, alone, the room silent except for his pounding heart. He had ordered a man killed. Would the world be better off? Bob Sherwood didn't have kids. He was married, though. He probably had people who depended upon him, looked up to him. With those two words, Carlos had taken all that away. And why? Because he had been treated callously by a faceless corporation that had done the same to thousands of others? No, this wasn't about him. It's not personal, Bob. It's about the project. The news story hit about a week later. L.A. video game guru still missing. 
He imagined it had been fairly easy for Steiger to surprise Bob in a parking garage or at his house. Somewhere Bob was alone, swiping at his phone, playing the alpha version of the game, trying to find the latest bug. He had found one, all right. The bug was you, Bob. The next day, he received a call from Jeremy Hahn, Bob's new boss. Hahn explained that Bob was missing. What was the term he used? On hiatus until further notice. Another director was now handling the project. Highsmith was out. Carlos was the composer again and offered a full-time position at the company at an eyebrow-raising salary. Carlos agreed on two conditions, that Elise would be rehired and that they get the musicians back into the studio to re-record the protagonist theme. Han's response had been this. Whatever you need, Carlos, just please get it done. We go beta in three weeks, and that means audio lock. Every bit of music that's going into the game has to be final. The day Carlos had all the players, including Steiger, come back to the soundstage, another headline was making its way around the news circuit. Video game guru found eviscerated. The players in control room were buzzing about it, though they got down to the business of recording when the conductor raised his baton. Seated in one of those executive ergonomic mesh chairs in the control room, Carlos heard Steiger masterfully play the theme. And, like Steiger had said, somehow it sounded even better. New E-string, Carlos noted. He was taken aback by his own lack of horror at the realization. Carlos didn't like the man in the mirror much these days. That had been the cost of being devout enough to achieve everything he wanted. He had become lean and mean, like the corporation he was a part of. Unlike the company, he still had his regrets, though. Forgive me, Bob. I was wrong. You did have something good to add to the score, after all. Oh, man. Uh, that... <laughs> it's such a nice build-up to like a very just fucking brutal man at the end like thanks man we know what the string is and okay you said he was inviscerated that's right what is the definition of inviscerated uh and and evisceration is the removal of uh, a victim's guts so (laughs) okay so that was what i was picturing i was like inviscerated and I was like (laughs) when he got you know when you realize that like yeah the new e string is bob's fucking guts you're like it's like it should just be like a if if it was in a movie it would just play like a, the score would just be like duh, 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 duh. <laughs> you know and then it cuts to like metal soundtrack yeah that'd be and great. just like the name of the title just goes Rah! on the screen <laughs> uh, it I don't want to tell people what I think my favorite story in this book because I don't want to persuade anybody but this one's this one's up there I like this one a lot and thanks, um, thanks, I think man. you know my other favorite one we'll get to uh, later in the book but um I have some suspicions yeah. Great, great read, man. Um, Thanks. So, let's see. I, I want to talk to you about... I took a note here because it was something I didn't think about before um, when I read it. Uh, so, the vacation during a project. like uh, that, <laughs> that has a personal pain for me. Same. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure all of us that worked in the industry can you know elaborate on that. But I'm just laughing because... I actually have a friend who was a pretty, pretty well-accredited music editor, and 
worked for one of the bigger name composers around town. Mm-hmm. He had worked there for about better part of eight years. Started there as an intern and stayed there a really fucking long time. And it's a um, long time, right? It's a long time to yeah. stay at one place, especially in that if you, you know who I'm talking about. And uh, he wanted to go. He was getting married and went on his honeymoon. And when he came back, he didn't have a job because he told me he wanted to go for a two week honeymoon. They told him you could have four days. It's too long. Yeah, and so he did. He did it anyways. And two weeks and eight years. Yeah, I mean, uh, for anybody listening that hasn't worked in the entertainment business, um, vacations are—they're <laughs> like—I uh, don't know—jackalopes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're—they're they're like a mystical beast. They're almost like their own cryptid. It's—it's it's a cryptid. The—the the vacation is a beast that doesn't really exist. And that's why I think it's funny when some of those companies will say, oh, you have unlimited vacation. <laughs> yeah, because you're never going to use it, so we don't fucking care. Right. It basically means we're just going to pay you for that unused time at the end of your employment. Yeah. And the rude, the other rude thing about it is when you get another job, you have to go directly to that job. Like, it's usually the, the other companies waiting those two weeks uh, that you gave notice to your former employers, and they can't wait to get you in because... The fact that you were hired means they were desperate for you. So you don't get a break then either. <laughs> no, man. It's like you, if you have, here's the way I always looked at it. And uh, what a boss even told me once, if you have enough downtime at this company to take vacation, then you're in jeopardy of losing your job. It's like, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. What is this shit, man? It was why I liked getting into more the um, corporate side of the business, like even more like working from operations. So not even really doing the super creative shit. You're just on operations kind of doing back end deliverables. You know, you're still doing, yeah, you're still doing creative in a way you're, you're being technically creative, but you're not necessarily attached to a specific project. You're kind of looking out for everything the company's involved in from an operational standpoint. And, I always found myself doing audio gigs like that and had a much better life. And then I moonlighted, started moonlighting as the prod, you know, like the more fun stuff I wanted to work on, like film and sound design and um, found a better work life balance doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even in, in um, something creative like audio production, uh, management uh, works, as you know, pretty much the same way it does with management anywhere. Um, you start out sort of being in the trenches doing the production on the on the project. And um, as you sort of rise up and you start getting people that report to you, and then part of your job becomes managing their job. Uh, and that sort of takes away from your time in the trenches until you go all the way up the corporate ladder and you're the CEO and 100% of your job is managing other people's jobs and, and just sort of directing the direction the, the corporation is headed. Yeah. And I mean, it's all up to the type of lifestyle you want to live, you know, I think is how it boils down to what works for you in your life. And some people um, are okay with being married to their job. And that is their life. Um, To a degree, I I think there's something to that. And I appreciate people that are but I think as I've gotten older, I really, really enjoy my time off. A lot. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are, are in the exact same boat, including myself. Um, yeah, I think uh, that when we first start working in entertainment, uh, having a 24-7 job is cool because, right. you know, it's great. I mean, it's a great job. You're working on, you know, art that you really believe in. Um, you're part of a 
world-renowned team. You know, there's a lot of really cool stuff about it. But as you get older, obviously priorities change. And it's really easy to see living, eating, breathing, sleeping a job uh, when you first start it. But eventually you want to have other things in your life besides work. And um, that's where the corporations start to differ with the individuals. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the kill fee, I, I really like how you tie in an actual industry term to <laughs> someone getting fucking murdered and paying for it, like an actual kill fee. It's kind of funny. Um, I think I called it a kill clause when I had it in my contract. Um, right. I learned the hard way why you have that. I remember a teacher telling me in school, like, oh, you guys should have that, you know, when you're, we had this business class on like how to manage yourself mm -hmm. um, as a creative, you know, freelancer. And she was saying, you know, you need a kill clause because, you know, this industry is inherent of people working on something and things change, just like this story, you know, like it, the only constant is change. And that's really prevalent in entertainment. And I didn't think I had a leg to stand on to put that in there. I thought people would read it and be like, oh, who the fuck is this guy? Who gives a shit? Yeah, we're just not going to hire you then. We don't care. Right. But um, I got burned once on a, a music project where, you know, I had put a significant amount of work into it, you know, uh, recording, mixing, kind of producing it. And they just completely bailed and didn't want to pay me anything at all. And I couldn't really hold anything. And I, I just said, you know what, fuck it. I don't want to make a case out of this. It's a lesson learned. And from there on out, I added it. And if, if someone doesn't want to work with it, then fuck them. That's the way I started to look at life. Like I read plenty of advice from people on LinkedIn and people are worth more than they give themselves credit. And if someone has a problem with the looking out for your interest while you're on a job, then in my opinion, they're not worth working with. Right. And you don't want to work for those people. Right. Yeah, the company looks out for itself. Um, the individuals need to look out for themselves. Uh, but absolutely. Yeah, if you're a freelancer out there and you're thinking about um, contract language and you know protecting yourself, just remember, as an individual, before you start work on the project, you have 100% power. Like you have, that's the only time where you can say yes or no and put whatever you want or propose whatever you want in the composer agreement or... Uh, the work agreement, and uh, if the other side says no, you have 100% power to turn the gig down and have them continue their search. But uh, once you start work on the project, you are bound by the contract, whatever it says. If you can build a kill fee into it, that protects you, the artist. It's not too uncommon a thing for um, companies like a game company to put that in, because uh, often there are, like you said, um, circumstances that are completely beyond even the foreseeable future of audio um, that would cause a project to stop. You know, something else in the game could become unviable and they have to pull it back or cancel it. Um, that happens all the time. So yeah, um, kill fee is good. It means you'll get paid. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be, uh, actually, I'm going to start an interview with Victor, kind of a, more background on the story. So stay tuned for an interview with, with Victor.
Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to The Sound of Fear. Uh, we're sitting here with Victor Rodriguez, author of The Sound of Fear, who you just heard read Kill Fee. Um, and now we're going to kind of kick it off into interview mode and get a better feel of uh, what helped Victor write this story and some of his motivation behind it, um, you know, where the creative came from. So maybe, Victor, uh, you could tell us about some of your literary sources for this and a little bit about that. Yes, sir. Um, well, uh, Kilfi is a Faustian story, which uh, it's basically there are two famous versions of Faust. One is by Johann Goethe, I think his name is pronounced, a German writer um, in the 1800s. Uh, and the famous one before that was tragical history of Dr. Faustus, I believe it's called, by Christopher Marlowe, um, who is a British playwright that some people think may have been Shakespeare or that there was some crossover between the two. What is known for sure is that Christopher Marlowe existed at one point and he may have been a spy for uh, the Queen <laughs> in <laughs> so England. Do they think like an actual spy or like, um, like for the government or a spy? for plagiarizing plays. <laughs> uh, no, no, like, like he worked for the government okay. um, in addition to being a, uh, a playwright. Um, gotcha. <laughs> but, but anyway, they're both great. They're both great stories. And um, there have been many, many versions of Faust uh, done through American movies, TV. You know, it's so much that it's, it's, called, it's a theme. It's a, a Faustian bargain or a Faustian deal. My favorite version of the, uh, that, that theme is a movie from 1974, called Phantom of the Paradise. It is a parody, horror, comedy, musical, drama movie um, directed by the rather insane Brian De Palma uh, in 74s, in right after he did Carrie, or maybe right before he did Carrie, one or the other. And um, one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Like, it made such an impression on me as, as a kid that uh, I have never stopped loving it. Like I, I watch it, you know, once every two years at least, and I listen to the soundtrack way more often than that. Uh, all the music was written by Paul Williams, who also stars in it. Um, and uh, he uh, plays an evil record mogul in that movie. Um, and he brings Faustian deals to his composers and his the bands in, on his label. And it was a way of, you know, De Palma, the scriptwriter, of saying, you know, this is how twisted the music industry is in 1974, is like it's run by these devilish figures, um, which is literal in the movie, but it's figurative in real life. And there are all kinds of callbacks to actual music business events that were happening in the 70s in that movie that are that were they were really funny and silly when i saw it the first few times when i was a kid yeah but now that i'm an adult and i know about what actually happened they're not funny like right. they're like well that actually happened to somebody yeah that's real life so anyway um that uh, there are a couple of lines in Kilfi that are lifted from phantom of the paradise um more or less you know they're they're you know transposed i guess uh but um a lot of the same action happens. Um, and so that's uh, our, our protagonist, Carlos Amador. He's a composer. Uh, so he is the one who is in a Faustian deal with um, both the corporation that hires him and then lets him go. And then he gets into another Faustian deal with the, um, the hitman, um, with the kill fee check, uh, which is both, that was my little inside joke was that, you know, it's a kill fee 
in his contract, but it's also the yeah. kill fee of the higher fee for the hitman. <laughs> I was I was really hoping for that, um, or when when I first read it, I was hoping for like I hope the kill fee comes back for something <laughs> else. Like this this has got to there's got to be more to it. So I, I like how I um, I think just you naming the story that actually um, gives the reader the thor- the the forethought to be like, all right, where is this going to come back? Yeah. Who's going to fucking die? <laughs> yep. Um, I looked up Carrie, and it came out in 76, so, you know, right before... Before then. Right, right before then. So, you know, you kind of cover people, you know, they talk about the gig economy, you kind of like, you know, there's a tone of that going on, and people being underpaid, um, but obviously this composer, like, Carlos is doing all right, because this, he's about to drop $200,000 like it's fucking nothing, like, you know, he doesn't even bat an eye at it, the character doesn't, just says, okay, you're hired, like... He has at least a quarter of a million of disposable income. Yeah, which would say <laughs> that he probably has triple that in, you know, in assets or something. So probably. he's doing pretty well. Yeah. So who, when you're talking about the, you know, the gig economy, are you thinking of more kind of like the regular worker bees, like the QA person who got let go? And Yes, I, I think it, it goes all the way up to the top because uh, even at the, at the level that Carlos is at like he's a freelancer, but he's an extremely successful freelancer. You know, um, in real in real life, he would be. I mean, composers make a, a decent amount of money. Absolutely, they uh, can yes in games. Um, but uh, they there aren't too many of them that are working at that level. Most of them just do one or two short gigs a year and try to scrape by. And usually have to supplement their income with another job, which is so. There's three characters in it. Like one is the Elise, the QA person, who's at the bottom of the totem pole, who's like needs her job to survive to eat. Um, then there's Carlos, who is at a different level of poverty. I would say, like he's living rich, but um, he needs to maintain that lifestyle to maintain his profile as uh, you know, a sort of a stylish successful composer and once he starts losing those things he'll probably be employed less and none of that's tackled in the story so it doesn't really matter um at least not in this story but carlos does appear in some of my other work as well i reuse some of my characters cool um and then the third level is um steiger who is um also in a gig economy he is also very wealthy because he's got a stradivarius but he says you know, yeah, he's a first chair violin, so he's getting regular gigs and he's great, but that's not enough. He's also got to kill people on the side to make ends meet, <laughs> to get his Stradivarius tuned up. <laughs> oh, to have that Stradivarius. So, all right, have you ever come close to being laid off? Have you ever been in this spot? Oh, yeah. That we found Carlos in? I've been laid off twice, um, and one of those times uh, is almost exactly what happens in the story. Um, like even the line the boss uses, like, you know, there are some changes being made today and it does affect you. Like, that's exactly what <laughs> my boss said to me. And I, I was stunned because I knew the layoffs were coming, but I had no idea that it was going to affect me. Um, I was like, well, they can't lay me off. Like, I'm super important to this company, but that's what everybody thinks. Right, right. So, you know, I went to my boss's office and I came out a ghost. And the other thing that uh, from from that from this story that uh, happened at that same job was the time where other people are being laid off. Like Carlos is remembering back to the other time the company made cuts, and this is what I did. I listed every employee's name next to the job they did, 
So when my boss called me and was like, look, you need to lay off some of your team, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to write down, this is what she does, this is what he does, this is what she does. Whatever thing you don't want done anymore, we'll just cross out that task and the name next to it, and that's who gets laid off. And they were like, oh, well, you know, we need all those things. And it's like, and, and it worked. Like, th- nobody got cut that time. Yeah. You put it in real, like, tangible form right in front of their face. I, I don't know where the hell that came from or how I had the balls to do that, but and, or that it worked. Like, it was all crazy. It was like somebody else took over my body, and I did that thing. It's fucking badass. And, yeah. <laughs> I would have just, like, oh, you could have doubled down and put a picture of their, their significant other or... <laughs> you know, like their kid or like how much their mortgage is or their rent is. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody likes to lay people off. Um, but, and of course that's why, you know, everybody wants somebody else to do it. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so have you ever touched or seen a Stradivarius in real life? I have. Um, I, uh, I recorded some music, uh, for a video game called SOCOM 2, um, in, 2000, I think it was around 2002, 2003. And weirdly, it was up here in Seattle um, at a place called Music Works. uh, And um, I was recording with a composer named Enon Zur. And uh, Enon hired one of the uh, the Stradivarius players uh, from uh, up here. I think he may have been from the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. And... um, I knew, basically I knew what a Stradivarius was. Like I knew it was a super expensive, uh, awesome sounding violin, uh, but I had never heard one played live that I knew was a Stradivarius until that day. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, they, they like to wheel out the corporate people into the, the, the soundstage and get to meet the musicians. And I met that, that guy, the first chair violin. And that's exactly what I thought when I shook his hand. I'm like, I'm shaking the hand of a man that plays a Stradivarius. And it really just put the zap on my brain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Not too many people get to even see one in real life. Um, or, I mean, I guess, I think I saw one in a museum when I was a kid. I think in D.C. they had one when, where I grew up. I saw one in a museum. I'm sure you and a lot of people listening to this have heard one. Um, you just don't know it's a Stradivarius uh, unless they, unless you look at the liner. You're one of those people that looks at the liner notes of yeah. everything. So since this is a story about music, uh, did you listen to any music while you came up with this story, while you wrote it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Um, I listened to uh, Hilary Hahn um, doing uh, Barber's Violin Concerto, and um, I had that on repeat. And, you know, sometimes I like to write with no music. Sometimes I like to write with certain tracks going on in the background or the score from a movie or some of my clients' work or something like that to inspire me. Um, but it's got to be, it's got to be, you know, sort of um, the volume low enough that it doesn't interfere with my thoughts, but it's also got to be inspiring enough that it kind of puts me in the world of whatever I'm writing. So, you know, being a soundtrack guy uh, in my first career, you know, that comes pretty natural to me. It's like kind of like music supervising my own job. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So Hillary um, uh, did that um, incredible performance of, of Barber's Violin Concerto, and you can, you can find it. It's, it's available online, or uh, I think it's on Sony discs. But um, anyway, it's a great piece, and uh, it really showcases the virtuoso violin playing that she does. And I think what like what I personally love about her style specifically is that it sounds 
so drenched with emotion uh, and she's so young. It just seems bizarre that somebody that young can uh, express themselves through an instrument that way. But she does. You know, it, I mean, I'm a 50-year-old guy and I, I just can read so much into the playing of, of that instrument. But that's why she's great. That's why she's one of the world's best. So That's really awesome. Uh, that's a really cool skill you've picked up on throughout your career, you know, being able to hear the actual emotion of the person playing the instrument. And it, I feel like I can get that from, you know, certain guitar players that I'm fond of. But yeah, that's really cool. You want a certain emotion in every music cue. So, you know, when you're scoring a scene, you've got the director saying, I want this to sound, you know, like pathos, or I want to play against picture. You know, I want a happy, wistful sounding song, even though it's a tragic scene, to make it just seem bizarre to the, to the viewer. Uh, something that David Lynch does. It's one of my favorite tactics, actually. Yeah. Like the most famous one I can think of is like Tarantino using "Stuck in the, in the Middle yeah. with You" and the, the ear, ear lopping yeah. scene. Uh, spoiler alert for Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah. um, God, I can't believe you just gave a spoiler, man. <laughs> it's kind of an old movie, but um, <laughs> I'm just fucking believe, with you, man. Knowing knowing that scene is in there it will not spoil your enjoyment of that movie, let me tell you. Um, but uh, there's a moment where the music supervisor has to report to the rights holders of the music, and there's a bunch of them. There's the people who own the recording, there's the, all the songwriters that wrote it, and you have to explain to them what's going on in the scene, uh, when it's happening. And um, a lot of times with a scene like that, they might go, no, we don't right. want our song remembered for that. I wonder if Tarantino gets involved in this because he seems to be pretty attached to like a lot of the aspects of his films. So I can just picture him being in there and being like, just as I make old actors famous again, I can revive old music again. Very true. I'm sure that that's happened many times. I, I also know that he's got stories about the songs that didn't make every movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which I know are perfect for, for the scenes. And believe me, I've got some of those stories too. But, um, you know, uh, his are awesome because you're like, yeah. That would have been really great. Um, but I can see why they said no. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I mean, you know, his movies are pretty gratuitous. And, you know, I could... I'm, but if you're writing a movie, I mean, and you're writing a scene, um, you know, just like how you write, you have, you're listening to music, you know. I, I know a lot of directors they, they, that say the same thing, you know. They, they think of a scene, they have a song, they associate with it immediately. It might, I think the good directors do. They're really really talented directors they're thinking of all that when they write it they're thinking of like what song would be playing right now you know like what 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 would the temp track be for this right and a lot of times that's what temp tracks are they're just uh, the the producer or the composer or the um director's uh ipod yeah playlist and then the composer and the music licensing people have to make the best of that and try to make it sound or feel as much like that list as possible yeah because i mean the editors cut picture to that most of the time, you know, the editors already cut picture to this, you know, iPod playlist. Right. Or in the stuck in the middle with you scene, like uh, the character who's doing the cutting is dancing. So yeah. it's got whatever made that scene had to be at least the same beat. Yes, yeah, exactly. That song. Yeah. yeah, the same the same feel and, and vibe uh, for sure. Well, Victor, it's a pleasure having you uh, here again uh, reading Kill Fee. It was a really cool story. Um, look forward to the next one. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, like like always, I'm just I can't wait to record again with you. It's always awesome. This uh, next story is uh, Kingdom by the Sea. It's uh, sort of my love letter to Seattle, the city I now live in, 
And um, you should tune in and listen. It's another very personal story. Well, thanks, Victor. Uh, We look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks for tuning in, everybody.